Do you have those days when you wake up and you just know you've got up on the wrong side of the bed? And do you know that on those days, the best thing for you to do is to choose your attitude, wake up and just make the most of your day? Well, you are going to love my guest today because this is what she lives for. Are you tapping into your potential? Are you then taking that potential and turning it into a purposeful and profitable online offering so you can impact more people, share your skills and expertise, and make a dent in the world? And are you doing this while living a life that fills you with purpose, happiness, and opportunities for growth? This may all sound too good to be true, and I am telling you, it isn't. These are the big questions that I seek to answer on The Untap Show, a podcast for go-getting humans who know that more is possible for them in life and who want to make real changes and live up to and beyond their human potential. In this weekly podcast, I share nuggets of wisdom on how to do this, combined with inspiring interviews with everyday humans who are doing this right now so that we can all learn from each other. I'm your host, Natalie Sisson, a best-selling author, podcaster, blogger, lifelong learner, triathlete and lover of handstands and who took her humble blog back in 2010 and somehow managed to turn it into a multiple six-figure business by creating different revenue streams based around my skills, talents and knowledge and I know that this is possible for you too. So every single week that's what you're going to hear here on this podcast to give you inspiration, motivation, strategy and tactics to do this for yourself and to lead a purpose-driven life. So let's dive in to this week's show. Deborah Searle is a unique and inspiring individual. Not only has she achieved a first-class honours degree, has launched four companies, won gold world championship medals for Great Britain, presented over 40 programmes for the BBC, had two books published and become the youngest ever trustee of the Duke of Edinburgh's award. She also rode single-handedly across the Atlantic Ocean. And if she sounds like a massively impressive person, she is. But when you listen to her, you will know that she is just like us. She is humble. She has fears. She has the imposter syndrome. She has doubts. But she is choosing her attitude every single day. And that is what this episode of the Untapped Podcast is all about. Let's dive into the interview. So I am so thrilled to have the one and only Deborah Searle on the Untapped podcast today because we were just discussing, I think it has potentially been, I'm not going to lie, maybe 10 years since we've actually seen each other, since we dragon boated across the English Channel and smashed a world record that Guinness didn't give us. And it's just been (laughs) such a pleasure to see your growth and this amazing journey that you've been on and continue to go on inspiring people around the world with your story. So I'm really excited to dig into that today. But first off, welcome. Thank you so much. It is kind of um, weird where if you look at all the people who are in that crazy world record attempt boat, like where everyone's ended up and who's doing what, and it's great that we're still in touch. Yeah, 100%. But you carry on doing crazy things, which I love. So that's what I want to get into today. And I think to sort of set the context for people, I actually first met you because I was in, I believe I was in Oslo, Norway, and you were the keynote speaker at a corporate event for the company I was with at the time. And you came on stage and you shared your story, which I'm going to get you to do a little of. And I just remember the whole audience was just mesmerized for, I think it was close to 45 minutes to an hour. And I don't think I'd ever seen a female keynote speaker so powerfully embrace this audience and have them in the palm of their hands. And then fortunately after you came, I think I came and sat next to you on the plane. <laughs> I totally <laughs> figured you out and I was like, I just have to do this. Otherwise I'm going to miss the opportunity to get to know Deborah in person more. And from that beautiful meeting, you then invited me to join the sisterhood which we then trained in this amazing dragon boating feat, which is just a whole other story. And I can link to that in the show notes. But without that, that whole experience would have happened. So I still want to thank you for this day. I'm so grateful. Literally that conversation we had on the plane and you took a chance on me and said, well, you seem like the sporty, crazy type. Come join us. And that's just sparked, yeah, just an amazing decade plus of friendship and experiences. But that just shows how ballsy you are. Like, I'm going to sit next to her on the plane. Like, I mean, that's, that's how people like you succeed because you, you just go, that's what I'm after and I'm going to go and get it. To be fair, there were lots of men on that plane and I thought she could probably use some female company. <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous though, but thank you. So I'd love for folks to just hear a little bit more about your story. Um, and then we will go obviously into what you do and, and all the ways that you've grown since I've met you at least, but it is quite incredible because at the end of the day, you are sort of a 
paid full-time adventurer and keynote speaker and so many more things and a mum and an amazing sportswoman and all these things. But how the heck did that all start? Well, it started really with um, the story that I was telling in Oslo that time, which was I was telling the story of when I I ended up accidentally rowing single-handed across the Atlantic Ocean. And this was a long time ago now. It was 17 years ago. And I had set out with my, my then husband, who was a six foot five international rower. I'd never rowed before. And um, we set off along with, I don't know, something like 36 other double-handed teams who were all men's teams. We were like the mixed team. Very soon into the journey, literally the first night, actually, Andrew got in- incredibly uh, anxious. And over the next few days, what we realized was that he suffers from a root really crippling phobia of open ocean and it was a complete shock to us this you know big strong rower when you're setting out to do something like row an ocean you think of all the things that could go wrong but we never thought that a psychological problem for him would be something we'd have to address Mm. and he got worse and worse and we we had to call a rescue because by the end of the first week I'd found him slipping in and out of consciousness and I uh I really wrestled with the decision of what do I do? Because I was absolutely loving it out there. And the bigger the waves got, the more they landed on my head, the more I loved it. But Andrew was having this you know, horrendous experience. And we didn't realize when we made the rescue call that it was going to take them another week to find us. So Andrew had two weeks on board the boat. I made this decision that I would carry on alone and try and finish it for both of us, which, you know, was really probably one of those sliding door moments. You remember that film with um, Gwyneth Paltrow's Sliding Doors, where, you know, just one decision in life can change the course of your life forever. And that's what that decision was for me, because it changed absolutely everything. Andrew was rescued. And I then went on to spend what I could never have anticipated was three and a half months alone in that tiny rowing boat on my own. Um, There was no support boat following me. I was completely alone. You know, if you think about it, there's probably only a a handful of people in the whole world who've spent more than 100 days alone in such a hostile environment. And it was, you know, full of massive highs and lows, terrifying and sharks. And there were two hurricanes while I was out there. But then there's these absolute moments of beauty and joy and tranquility and just this incredible marine life. And so... Um, you know, although it, I went on a very physical journey for those 111 days at sea, it was really the inner journey that was the most life changing and is still life changing all these years on. It's, it's the bit that's still impacting me the most. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. And thank you so much for attempting to condense that so much because you could sit and listen to Deborah for hours talking about this, the the ordeal that you went through. And I remember seeing photos when you're up on stage of you just kind of like calling home every so often on that satellite phone. And I know that was also quite limited and you just be out there for days on end, alone in your own thoughts, willing yourself to go on. Some days was great. Other days you were like, must have been the loneliest, most isolating thing in the world. Um, But through that, obviously, you developed this, I guess you have choices, right? You either, you chose to go on. So you had to develop this incredible mental strength to get yourself through that and to really talk yourself through every single day. And I'd love to come to some of those things later, because ultimately, at the end of the day, when you go around the world and speak, and in your continued adventures that you do, you're tapping into that all the time, this mental fortitude that you built over those 111 days but before that you were mentioning before we jumped on this call that that really wasn't something that you had a lot of that that you know you hadn't really worked on your mindset like I think so many people don't they don't appreciate it's probably the most important thing in the world so can you do a little bit of before and after of you know the Deborah before and then the Deborah after and how that's impacted everything yeah, I mean, the Deborah before was a PE teacher. Uh, I'd gone into that career because my my parents had said, you know, it'd be a great career for you because when you have children, you'll be able to have the same holidays as them, you know. I mean, it really wasn't very aspirational for me. But what I really wanted to do was be an entrepreneur like my father. He was this, you know, phenomenal entrepreneur. I'd grown up seeing him buying and selling and growing businesses, but I had this incredibly limiting belief about my intelligence. And I just didn't believe that I had it in me to run a business. Mm. And, and really that came about because I've got an identical twin sister. And, you know, when you're as physically as identical as Haley and I are, um, people compare you constantly. They can't help it just because you look so similar, but they also compare you academically. And so very early on, she became the intelligent twin and I became the sporty twin. You know, that was how we were described. And so, of course, I grew up with this kind of, absolutely ingrained belief that I had no intelligence. Haley had the intelligence. 
and and that's why I ended up going into this PE career and you know teaching and and not doing what I my heart's desire which was you know, to do adventure stuff but also to be a businesswoman and what the Atlantic proved to me was that and I think probably for all of us is that we are so capable of putting up with horrendous amounts of hardship horrendous you know you, you would not believe the extent to which we can go and very few of us get to push ourselves and learn that at a young age I think as we go through the knocks and scrapes of life you know losing a parent to cancer you know those types of things we build that resilience but I was 26 when I rode the Atlantic and I had a you know a big hit of trying to find ways, attitude tools, I like to call them, to push through that three and a half months at sea. Uh, and, and it's those tools that I suppose have really equipped me going forwards to do the things that came after the row. And, um, you know, for example, what, you know, probably a, a, what really highlights it for me is that when I started to take the attitude tools I was using at sea and then think, right, how do I use them on dry land? Within a year of coming back from the row, I'd gone from being a PE teacher to working with the British royal family and attending meetings at Buckingham Palace. You know, it was, I mean, the trajectory was huge. And when I go around the world speaking, it's those attitude tools I like to share with people because I think that they're absolutely the type of thing anyone can do. They're generally very practical things, um, but actually it takes just a small amount of content effort to do them and then to try and make them habitual that's obviously that you know the hard bit that for most of us is you know we can all do these things once but it needs embedding longer than that yeah 100 percent. so i just do want to talk a little bit about how did you end up working for the royal family <laughs> so oh this is a great story so what happened was i when i came back from around the atlantic it'd been a really big pre- story around the world you know and uh, I, I think it was partly because it was it was quite soon after 9-11 there'd been a lot of negative press and the media jumped on this story of you know husband abandons wife mid-Atlantic it was like this irresistible news story and so it was front page news really around the world and on you know on all the tv networks and uh, there's a charity uh, a royal charity called the Duke of Edinburgh's Award and they were having a special gala dinner, like a ball. And it was based around the Magnificent Seven. And they picked seven people who'd done something magnificent that year. And because I'd been in the media a lot, they'd invited me to be one of those Magnificent Seven. And I was sat next to Prince Philip, who's the Queen's husband. And it was an amazing evening because he was the first person I'd spoken to who really understood what it was like to live at sea because he'd, he'd been living on naval ships for you know four years during the war. And so I'd describe things about the ocean and, and he would describe things and I'd like, that's it. You know, he, it, it was an incredible conversation. But bizarrely, we ended up having this argument about euthanasia. And, and I didn't realise, because I was young and naive, that you're really not meant to argue with royalty. Uh, <laughs> but I could see he was loving it. Like nobody challenges anyone in the royal family you're just not meant to do that but he really got into this great we got into this great argument about it and then he went to leave and I said oh I'm coming to your house next week being really cheeky meaning Buckingham Palace yeah and he said what are you coming to my house for and I said oh your wife is giving me an MBE <laughs> talking about the queen really shouldn't <laughs> <be> queen. <laughs> um which is that the MBE is a member of the British Empire it's a big you know a big award that you, you that um was very kindly given by the queen and he said to me, didn't you come to my house or something before that I'd said in a previous conversation? I said, yes, I, I, you know, that was to collect blah, blah, blah. And he said, gosh, you're coming around to my house a lot. And I said, you know what? I'm coming around that often. Maybe I should get a little flat upstairs and just move in. And he was so quick. You know, this guy's in his 90s. He leant forward. He went, oh, no, dear, that would never do. The press would have a field day. And it was just like it was just so such a great interaction with him. There was really good banter. And I got this phone call a week later from the CEO of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award saying, I don't know what you said to Prince Philip, but he would love to invite you to come and join the board of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award. So it was it probably came out of me being a little bit too cheeky uh, <laughs> and being prepared to challenge him. Perhaps he thought I need a few people on the board who are prepared to challenge me. <laughs> That's so awesome. And whatever, he's always been a flirt. So good for him on doing that right. <laughs> he's got a sparkle in his eye. There's something yeah. really special about him. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it. So let's jump into that. So it's after this massive ordeal and I can only imagine the press and the, the stories that went on. How did you then start actually turning this into something that became your career for the last how long has it been now 17 years now yeah Yeah. wow so what was I guess the first did it all 
the first thing that you did or did it all kind of come at you and opportunities presented themselves like that? Or were you actually quite intentional about how you took that forward? Or did you actually have no idea that you were going to go into keynote speaking and all this other stuff that's come with it? Oh, I had absolutely no idea. No. I mean, what the reason the speaking came about was because I, I, I finished in Barbados. That was the, the end location. And we had been invited onto an awful lot of um, TV shows. And, but, you know, I hadn't seen my family for three and a half months. My mum, you know, my, all my family were there. Andrew was there, my, who's now my ex-husband. And, I, you know, I wanted to spend some time with them. And, you know, they were saying, oh, no, you must come back and do this interview with Meg Ryan. And, you know, and I mean, it was crazy. I just didn't know that world at all. Um, And the other thing that was really playing on my mind was that I was really in debt from the row. So I was uh, we had the BBC cameras there from the the news team. And I was chatting to um, one of the researchers and saying, gosh, I'm so in debt. Um, I've got this satellite phone bill to pay. It's twelve and a half thousand pounds. I don't know how I'm going to pay it. And I didn't know how to turn these opportunities into money so that I could pay this bill. Anyway, the BBC got a phone call from uh, Vodafone, you know, big uh, global telecommunications company. And they rang up the BBC and said, we've just seen this woman on the news who's rode the Atlantic. And we'd really like her to come and speak at our our big sales conference back in the UK when she returns to England. Um, Do you know if she does speaking? And by complete coincidence, he had been put through to this researcher, this runner from the BBC who I'd been complaining to about the phone bill. And she said, oh, yes, yes, she does do public speaking. She's 12 and a half thousand pounds. <laughs> and she instantly got my phone bill paid off because he said, that's fine, we'll pay that. And wow. we just want, her, we want to be the first company she comes back and speaks to. So I, I flew back to England. I did this. <laughs> so <brilliant>. phone. Uh, <laughs> so I'd never spoken to <laughs> oh, I was I was absolutely bricking it. I had no idea how to deliver a speech. I'd never spoken on stage before. And, um, you wow. know, I mean, I suppose that's, what that's was throwing trying... you in the deep end, eh? even though you'd been in the deepest end with the throwing challenge, that's a whole other thing. Like, obviously, I think you were probably absolutely more than ready and capable for it, but still just such a different set of skills. Well, what the Atlantic had shown me was that, you know, almost daily after Andrew left, I'd been pushed outside my comfort zone where I had no idea how to do the job on my own. And exactly the same way, I didn't know how to do this job of speaking on stage. But I'd seen happen time and time again crossing the Atlantic was that each time I was pushed outside my comfort zone, if I stuck at it, if I just focused on controlling the controllables and not wasting time and energy on things I couldn't do anything about, the comfort zone would shift to where I was. And that became the new comfort zone. So when I stood on the stage, I thought, I have so out of my comfort zone, but I just thought, no, come on, just control the controllables. And the only thing really I could control was telling my story from the heart at that point that, you know, I didn't know how to do it any other way. And so I just spoke really honestly. I just had this incredible experience alone for three and a half months. And so I was quite raw in the way I told it. And the lights were so bright. There was 2000 people in the audience and and I couldn't see any of them because the stage lights. And when they put the stage lights up at the end, I I had the standing ovation and people were like crying. I mean, I was so shocked, but it's partly because I'd been really emotional when I was speaking because I'd ha- I couldn't help but be emotional because I just had this life-changing experience. And it was a real lesson to me that it, as a communicator, we've got to be authentic. We've just got to be, we've got to be raw and be prepared to show the highs and the lows. And not, I think, particularly if you're interested in motivational speaking, that it's not about the rah-rah, you know, always talking about the ups. I think people need to see something much more authentic than that these days. I think you are absolutely 100% right because people buy into the authentic you. They want the real story. They want the behind the scenes. They want the raw emotion. And they just want to be able to resonate with somebody. I mean, most people couldn't even imagine what it's like to single-handedly row across the Atlantic. And <laughs> I don't do that. that. <laughs> exactly. It's a ridiculous And make that decision in that moment. Oh, no, I think I'm going to go on without him. But, you know, it's incredible. But at the end of the day, you are still human, incredible human. And people need to be able to know that they can relate and resonate. Oh, okay, Deborah had those fears too, or be on an entirely different scale. And I think one thing that really has captured my attention about you ever since is you're always that way. Like, even you must have told your story a bazillion times. That's a little bit over-exaggerated. But you always tell it with the same amount of emotion and rawness and authenticness. I still yeah. think even after, after 17 years, which is no mean feat, right? Like I think 
I personally don't know if I could. I And I think there must be a part of you that goes, do you do this actually? Like go back to being in that moment and feeling it every time or almost that's, that's exactly it. Yeah, right. that's exactly it. You ha- I think I have to put myself back in that little wooden rowing boat. And I always think, you know, although I know this story and I've told it a thousand times, this is the first time that this audience have heard it. And so yes. put yourself back in that boat and try and get yourself back into that emotion you felt at the time in order to portray it. Um, and, and I think that's the, that's the only way to do it. I mean, there's also an element, I suppose, when you, you have a speech that you tell a lot, is that you, you do get to the point where you learn what works and what doesn't work with an audience. You know, there are certain bits of the story that are always going to remain the same. Andrew always gets off the boat. You're like, there's key things I can't change about the story. But what you can do, and I think this is the, the real art of speaking and oratory and something I'm fascinated by, is how do you weave in the messages that actually are going to re- resonate with a particular audience in front of you? Because it, it can't just be my story. It has to become their story somehow. And and that can only come if I really understand who they are. So uh, if you're delivering a speech, and I think this helps with nerves as well, the more research and time you can spend on your audience understanding their business that you know or their industry sector who their competitors are what their current challenges are and I do that through briefing calls I send a pre-event questionnaire to the client I have in-face meetings with them and unless you invest that time it's very difficult to really resonate and be authentic in a way that's going to relate to that particular audience and so it's worth putting in the effort beforehand to and and, and I think if for no other reason that it gives you confidence going on to stage that you you know what you've written is going to hit the mark 100 percent. and I think these are just excellent tips anyway for anybody because Every single person needs to get to know you through your story and storytelling is the fundamentally best way, I think, to be able to market, convince, advocate um, and inspire people. So at the end of the day, regardless of what, you know, for those of you who are listening, it's all about storytelling. So thank you so much for some of these incredible tips. So I'd love to come back to this, (laughs) the £12,500 job, that was brilliant. And then how did things go from there? Like, what sort of unveiled as these ways in which you could actually you know, monetize this incredible story, but also mm-hmm. the, the, all the years of experience you had in sport and in teaching. Um, and really then how did that kind of become this, this personal brand and career for you? Yeah, well, Vodafone were very kind, as were the production company who were putting on this big conference because they they spread the word they started to tell other companies and friends and other companies oh we had this you know woman with this crazy story you should get her into your conference so a little bit started as word of mouth but the other thing that happened um very early on was that um uh, Haley, my twin sister left her job she was a marketing manager uh her background was marketing i knew nothing about marketing and we joined forces and that was really key. Is, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, you, you work alone. You think you can't afford an, an employee, but actually, even just one person more can make such a difference if they have a different skill set to you that that together makes the jigsaw puzzle whole. And that's what Haley did really. Um, she, I remember her saying to me quite early on, "Look, if we're going to work together, you have to accept that I'm going to treat you like any other product that I'm marketing." She said, "You're, you're really, you're just like a toilet roll." I don't know why she used that example but she said just think of it like this you're like a toilet roll that I've got to sell so I've got to package you in the right way put you out at the right price in front of the right audience and then I'll sell my toilet roll and and that's what she you know she put a a marketing strategy behind Deborah as a as a brand as a speaker as a a professional adventurer and you know a lot of uh, credit must go to her and and the the team together the two of us it was a it was a really successful team because you know, I really shouldn't be a, a successful speaker on the global platforms. I've shared a stage with Tony Robbins and Deepak Chopra and, you know, incredible people, Mikhail Gorbachev. You, know. you have every single right to be there. My, but my but not in that I'm not a... I'm not a big name though. Like I'm not someone famous and most people listening to your podcast will never have heard of me. So in many respects, I shouldn't be the kind of person that should get on these really big stages. But, but I do. And that's partly because... Um, 
we we worked really hard at the marketing early on mm. and we were really clear about what my my messaging was exactly the same you would have to be in any business for it to be successful no matter how small you are just being really clear about you know the audience you're putting yourself out to and we tried really early on to set ourselves apart in customer service in, in speaking for example it's you know it's renowned that speakers you know, they turn up at the last minute, they go on stage and they've got almost got a waiting taxi outside to take them away again. They hand over a memory stick with a presentation on five minutes before they're due on, you know, and it's a nightmare for the production company. So we set ourselves apart in ways that I suppose it's easier for me to do that. Someone really famous jets in and jets out. Well, we do the other way. I turn up, you know, the night before and have dinner with the clients and I'll, I'll build relationships with them and, and make them feel that they're getting good value for money, that I'm giving them extra. And we, I don't think whatever the business is, that's what we should always be doing this. What is this one extra step you could take that would set you apart from your competitors? Yeah, 100%. Although I still think it's nonsense and that you have every right to be on those stage and celebrityism and famousness doesn't guarantee that you're ever going to be a great speaker. In fact, I wish there were more fantastic speakers out there who learn the craft, who practice, who put in the effort that you do as well to to turn up and be super professional and really, really share an amazing story and move people because there's just been far too many people on stages being paid who I think you know, don't actually deserve to be there. You still have to, as you said, think about the audience and how am I going to turn up today and give them amazing takeaway or something that they can go and do. It's not just about I'm a big name and I deserve to be here. So I think yeah. that's every right. But thank you for uh, your humility and obviously the care that you put into these people is why you keep getting asked again and again. How many talks have you done to date now? Oh gosh, we, we lost, we stopped counting at a thousand and that was a few years ago. So I've, I've lost count now of how many it's been. And it's such an honor that I, I, I feel that at every speech I go to, you know, that, you know, to have a, a platform like that in, is, is a real honor. And that's why I think it deserves effort. Like, and they pay a lot as well. They pay a lot for speakers. So, you know, they deserve the, a, a good quality of service. Now, what I love is that you started out at twelve and a half thousand pounds, which was a little bit of a special, um, you know, rate, obviously. It was a, in that yeah, moment. one off. Odd, but but yeah. did you kind of manage to sort of then keep that? Because I think one of the biggest things is across all people in the world, when they are getting paid to do something that only they can do, is they do often undervalue that and they undercharge. Mm-hmm. And you kind of started out of this thing that you were like, never in a million days would I have expected that. Um, but how easy or not easy has it been to? to really charge what you're worth and also take into account, especially as a speaker for those who are listening and haven't done it, there's all the preparation beforehand. Um, As you said, there's the travel, the prep, the turning Mm -hmm. up the relationships that you put in. Some people do that in an hour or less and it's terrible and others, you know, really it's quite a lot involved and people don't always account for that time and effort. So I guess how have you sustained that or even grown that? And did you have any... Yeah, it went down from that number, and now it's gone over that number because right. um, because I've been doing it for a long time, and I you know I've got a reputation now, I suppose. So um, I think it's been about networking has been a really key part of it for me because although there are speaking agents and speaking bureaus out there, and people are always you know that's the big thing they want to try and get represented by an agent. The reality is you absolutely don't need to. I've only only about 48% of my work comes through a speaking agent. The rest comes through corporate clients oh. that I have spent the time building a relationship with and keeping in touch with over the years and of course you know when you you connect with the director of you know, Vodafone when they move to O2 you know they go oh well now I'm at O2 and that audience hasn't heard you can you come in and speak to my team there and so it's a lot of things like keeping in touch on LinkedIn when I'm in London you know meeting up with a CEO or director for lunch or a coffee or you know or just dropping someone a note and and keeping that relationship alive so that you know, if they move teams or they move to a different company altogether, that they get you back uh, and, you, and that you, you remain memorable to them. So smart. So smart, yet probably so overlooked by so many people. Yeah. And I think a huge part of that comes down to ego. They should want me. They should book me. I need a speaking agent. Mm-hmm. They should be coming to me rather than I need to really hustle and continue to market myself for the rest of my life if this is what I want to do. Um, and it's about being friendly as well, like back to this authenticity. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I did right at the beginning was when I met a director, like it's laughable now because, you know, there are so many good 
content relationship management systems and all the rest. But I, I just kept a spreadsheet of those directors. <laughs> and when they told me really personal things like little Jimmy, their 10 year old son is really into rugby. I would make a note of that. And I remember this one job, it was for Morgan Stanley. And I met this managing director there and he was on the phone and I overheard him in the green room talking about this dog who'd had puppies. He was so excited. And it turns out in his wife, breeds dogs anyway I kept a note of this and I I then contacted him sometime later and I said oh how is and I, I'd even written down the name of the dog I can't remember it now but you know how is, is Sally doing and she had another litter of puppies or whatever he was so over the moon that I'd got in touch and asked about this thing that he was obviously very passionate about that he then said oh by the way we've got this event coming up actually you'd be really good for that <laughs> and I had more work for him so I think it's about this personal touch of you know even if you're just writing in a notepad or keeping a spreadsheet of pe- the the key people you've met who there there could be some useful business connection there in the future. It's about remembering what's important to them, the personal stuff, not, you know, not necessarily what position they were in the business. It's what what are they passionate about? I love that. And yet it's something that we often, I'm talking about we in general here, often start doing with intention and then kind of forget. And just yesterday I was at an amazing workshop called Inspire to Lead. And it was all about how do you turn up as a leader and coach really effectively. And uh, we all had coffee at one point and the lovely people who were at Westpac, the bank, um, said, we want to buy you all coffee. Um, and so I wrote up on a flip chart, the orders for everybody. Um, and then I said, can I take a photo of that? Because I want to remember the people who I work with. I want to remember what their coffee is so that next time I can just surprise them with their favorite coffee. And it, it was something that I realized that I do on and off, but not frequently enough. So congrats to you on like taking that extra step. And as a result, that earned you massive respect. Um, and you made them feel remembered and important. And as I believe it is, Maya Angelou said, it's not about what you teach people. It's about how you, they you remember you made them feel. Yeah. Kind of butchered yeah, that quote. But absolutely. you know, the way, and it is. It's like you will give so much time to somebody who made you feel special or they made you laugh or they just made you feel like you counted. So smart move, smart move. And yeah. also something that you just do naturally. It's not like it was a, a thing that you did, but obviously it's worked really, really well for you. So people take note who are listening. So moving from there then, obviously speaking, um, amazing and gave you huge opportunities, but you're an adventurer at heart. And so I imagine a big part of your career has also been about taking on these other challenges, planning them, uh, organizing the epic journeys and pulling them all together. The, you know, the sisterhood was one of those, but how important has that been to you to kind of keep yourself engaged and invested? Because this main event that has been the thing that you've built your career on was 17 years ago. And I'm sure there must've been moments where you feel like, Oh gosh, that was 17 years ago, even though it's going to stay with you for life and it's an incredible, but how important has it been for you to, to take on other challenges and adventures? Yeah. I mean, it was really important to me because it was the thing I, I really loved and, and, and also I could see that there was a real business opportunity there. So I, I started um, going on expeditions and then I connected with the BBC and persuaded them to come along and film a few of them for documentaries for BBC Two. You know, again, it's back to this thing about pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Like I never really wanted to work in TV, but once I got a foot in the door and this networking could start again, I um, they asked me if I would um, take on a mainstream presenting role. So I got put in the BBC talent pool, which is like a talent development system. And I spent four years presenting full time for the BBC for various programs. Uh, and, and actually, in a way, that took me away from the adventures. And that I actually found that quite difficult because, you know, part of the thing I love about going on expeditions is it's really remote. It's so far away from the real world. But then when you've got a, hol- a helicopter hovering above you in the Yukon with a cameraman in it, all of a sudden this peace and this tranquility that you would, you know, ordinarily you'd go and find on these expeditions wasn't there anymore. And so I, I didn't really enjoy the TV side of things. It wasn't really for me. I think you've got to really want to be famous, to love working in television. So when I started, I, I remarried and I, I started having children. I dropped out of the TV work and I've carried on doing the kind of challenges and expeditions, but we we changed the guise of them a little bit. So rather than being funded by the BBC, we started getting them funded by big companies and they had very different reasons for being involved in them. Some of them, it was uh, around client entertaining. Sometimes it was about employee engagement. Sometimes it was just for kind of sponsorship and marketing opportunities. Um, and, and, and that kind of opened up a whole new avenue of doing expeditions in a, a different way. And then one of them changed everything. And that was we, 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 
we'd never taken kind of other people on expeditions before particularly but we um i had it in my head that i i wanted to do an expedition to the arctic and that i wanted to take a group of women really to challenge some of the misconceptions about adventures being these big rugged blokes with beards <laughs> and to take a group of women who were just like your mum or just like your auntie or just like your daughter whether when men were watching on they go well she's just like that you know, that woman in my life. So I didn't want, you know, your triathletes and your marathon runners. I wanted women of all shapes and sizes. And I mentioned this at a a conference for a car company, a lease company called Lease Plan, that that was my real desire was to take a team of women like that to the Arctic and to do it as part of a kind of gender diversity project to really look at diversity and inclusion. Anyway, three of the women in the audience leapt to their feet in the middle of this conference, put their hands up and said, I'll go. Anyway, I didn't, you know, I just thought, oh, that's really sweet, you know, lovely, great. But, you know, I, I didn't know how I was going to pull this thing off. And about three days later, I got a phone call from the HR director saying, look, we are having women badger us all the time since your conference about whether it could be the least plan Arctic challenge and that you take the women from our organization. Do you want to come in and pitch to us about this project? And that, that project was a real game changer for us because it, it, it really opened our eyes to this problem of diversity and inclusion internally in businesses, in particular gender balance. And at the time we were looking at, well, how do we diversify our, our businesses? Because the problem with being a speaker and adventurer is it relies just on you. And if I got breast cancer or if something had happened to me, then, you know, I wouldn't get paid. My sister's family wouldn't have any money. The other people employed wouldn't be paid. And so it was quite a fragile business model, really. And we started to look at well, what are the other business opportunities out there that we're passionate about? And off the back of that Arctic project, we launched Mixed Diversity Developers, which has been going about four or five years now and is, is just been such a joy it's so completely different um, from everything else I've ever done but now we work with global organizations normally the boards of directors and then doing training internally throughout the businesses and also we've just started advising um, a few governments as well we're working with the Irish government so it's, it's been really exciting to move into a completely different industry sector yeah I bet that's just incredible I hadn't realized that was a huge chunk of the work you were doing and just amazing. And the impact that must be having is incredible, I'm sure. Um, that was like the world's longest answer. And I don't even know what the question was we started with. <laughs> no, it, was, it was how sort of you diversified, I guess, the income streams from the speaking and what other projects you're working on as a result. So uh, if, if one could kind of describe your business before we go into the next business that you built as well, um, what would you say are the sort of revenue streams that make it up, the ways in which you make income? Obviously, there's, there's keynote speaking, but you just sort mm. of want to run, run through them just to give people an idea of, of what's possible, the ways, I guess, in which um, you being you has come back to you in some form of other for you to be able to carry on and do great work. Yeah, I mean, the speaking is is a really key one. It's very profitable once you get to a certain level. Um, so I suppose it's been TV presenting and writing. I've written some books and um, uh, brand ambassador type roles. And then, um, you know, for mixed diversity developers, we, we it's con- uh, it really it's a um, we're consulting. It's a consulting practice and a training provider, and online courses and. Um, yeah, it's been it's been such a mixture of revenue streams now, and that and that's great because I think that gives a lot more security because you're not just relying on one thing. What courses and and hundred percent, but I'd love to know what courses you've put out there because I think the people who are listening and curious is like awesome. How have you managed to do that, and and what topics are they on? Well, actually, um, our first one was a business that we we don't even run now. Where I got asked so often, how in you know, how have you developed your speaking career, and how I mean, have you done this when you're not particularly famous? So we launched a business called Your Speaking Career, and um, we actually um, we stopped that business because mixed diversity developers and Shell Projects, my original business, had taken off so much that we we just found we didn't have the capacity to run it. But we were selling an online course that educated people about not only the performance side, but how do you launch a, a speaking business. Uh, and you know, that was really heartbreaking because we put two years of work into that that project. And for anyone who knows who's tried to launch an online course, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. And um, But it, I think, I guess one of the things I've... I've had to accept over the years is that sometimes it's just not the right fit. And 
and actually the other businesses were a better fit and it was an incredible position to be in that the other businesses were doing so well that there wasn't time to really commit to your speaking career but I do think it it was it's quite an important area um, because so many people struggle with public speaking but the courses now we're doing are more around diversity and inclusion on our mix website that that's tends to be training around you know everything like how do you recruit more inclusively because uh, the recruitment process is a key part of it so that we're, we're slightly more focused now on selling um, courses to corporates rather than to, to individuals um, which it, which in a way is much more profitable because you're selling in bulk yeah, 100%, I can imagine. And I love that story as well because, you know, some businesses stand the test of time. Others are there for the moment that they're meant to be there. And I can totally see why you would have gone down that route, especially with all the speaking you were doing, was to share with people how they could do it. But ultimately, I think the businesses that last are the ones that are most integrally tied to your passions and the skills that you yeah. have at the time. And if we're really being yeah, the humans that we want to be, we keep learning and evolving. So it's natural that your business is going to do the same or that at some point you have to, you know, shut it down and, and embrace the new one. And we, you know, we'd spent a lot of money on it, you know, and, it, and, and that was one of the big wrenches about it. It's like, oh, we've spent all this money developing these products. And, and um, I felt bad for everyone. The website developer, they spent months designing this beautiful website. The editors, like everyone involved, I felt bad that this, we'd shut this product down. But, you know, the reality of it was that, I mean, you're right about, about fit, but it, it, I think for me, it's about I've got to do things well. It's probably, it's a fault. Like, okay, I'd love to just say, well, just leave the product out there. Let it, you know, let it sell on its own. But I, I just don't, I can't do that half-heartedly. <laughs> like if I'm going to do it, I want to do it really, really well. And I, I felt I, I couldn't give it the time it, it needed. And so, you know, to close it down, there was, was kind of heartbreaking at the time. But do you know what's been really interesting off the back of that is that everything we learn, every bit of software, you know, things like we learned to use lead pages, we learned to do, you know, <laughs> online courses, all of that we are still using in the other two businesses. So it was like this brilliant learning platform. It was like doing a kind of mini MBA in online courses that was not wasted. It was, it then just, it then moved into the other businesses. So, you know, I know when I stand back and look at it without the emotion, actually everything has been brilliant because it, it did teach us how to do it all. Such a great attitude to have. And absolutely. I think, I was listening to um, Michelle Obama, her latest book, Becoming, and I really love how she talks about failure as an emotion that you feel well before it's actually experienced. And why I guess I'm saying that in this moment is like, in that moment, you knew you had to shut it down or it hadn't quite worked. So therefore, maybe it didn't feel like success, but knowing that that was coming, you were able to go, well, look at all the amazing learning lessons and all the things that we've now put into other businesses that have come off the back of what was deemed a failure, but isn't. And I guess that's why for me, I never see anything as a failure. It may hit you hard at the time. It may smack you in the face. You may feel like a complete loser. It may feel like the worst thing in the world. But once you get past that kind of, which is often ego um, being hurt is that you go, Oh, well, look at all the things that came out of that. And if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. And if I hadn't learned that in that moment, I never would have been able to apply it here. So I always love, even though it's hard in the moment to embrace what really are stepping stones and learning moments that are raw and some of the best experiences you'll ever have. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we, we probably wouldn't have done it if we hadn't pre-sold the course, but mm. because we pre-sold it and we were doing it live and then we used the recordings to create the course, it forced us to do it because we'd advertised it and sold it. And so we were forced to learn those skills. And, and yeah. so anyone who's thinking of, you know, we've been talking about doing an online course for about three years and it was only because we pre-sold it and we, then we had to do it. That, that's what made it happen that then created all those learnings. Yeah, I'm all about the pre-sale because also at the same time, that really helps to understand whether people do want it. And I see often people having these amazing ideas in silo, thinking it's brilliant, not testing or validating whether this is something people even need or want to learn or are hungering for. And then they do all this work and put a huge amount of money in behind the scenes and crickets, whereas you actually had pre-sold it all and then had to do all the learning to bring it up to speed, which exactly. you'd now be able to apply. So, you know, 
it's a smart, the reselling is smart even, and it does force you to go through with it because now you've got a deadline and an audience and these people who are wanting it to happen. It's, it's a brilliant way to get motivated and, and ship it. So yeah. I'd love to talk about now how you have come to another business because before we hit record, you were mentioning something that's pretty dear to my heart as well as, as solopreneurs or as individual personal brands or you know when we build a business around ourselves there's that very real possibility that we may something may happen to us and therefore there is no business and and you know nobody to take that over so what have you done to I guess avoid that or to aid the great work that you're already doing and make sure that things are going to be great and your impact's going to carry on but also just to be really smart and savvy and realistic about you are just one person yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things we we did some years back now was that we sat down with a bit of paper and we did the kind of Venn diagram, the three circles overlapping with the kind of what are we passionate about? What are we good at? And then what are people prepared to pay for? And that sweet spot in the middle where they overlap was was a, a list of things that we thought actually those things could all be businesses. And we worked through those ideas and tried to work out whether there was a business case in any of those. Because, you know, the reality is Haley and I, we've, we've started... Um, four or five businesses now, I think. And we always said right from the beginning, we'll try and do things that are fun. Like if it gets to the point where this just becomes so painful for everyone, then what's the point of doing this? And so that mixture of, you know, what we're passionate about, what we're good at and, and what the customer will buy. Um, we, we always kind of put the passion fun circle in. Uh, and, and that was how mixed diversity developers came about. And really exciting development is a, a, a new business for me, which is called Brave Girl Media. And I, last September, I sold the movie rights to the Rowing the Atlantic story. And there's now so this film in development. You. Like, I remember which, your Instagram post of you yeah. by the Hollywood sign, and I was like, oh, "I'm no, doing it." Oh, so I know it's been. I mean, it was a bizarre time that you know when that when that photo was taken because I'd I'd literally I'd come from a meeting where I'd sat there discussing which actress might play me, and they're all like really big name actresses, you know, and it was so surreal and quite overwhelming as well. You know, it's hard to kind of get your your head around and when I was drifting along on those ocean currents all those years ago, you know, the last thing I I had no idea anyone was even watching because you have to remember back then there was no social media. And, you know, I just, I never thought this story would carry on as long as it has. And now potentially even it might even be made into a, a movie. So we're, you know, we're, they're going at the moment, they're at the stage where they're pitching to, um, the big studios and um, we find out in the next few weeks um, what's happening with all of that. But it's, it's really wow. exciting. Do you think just out of interest, I know it's not always possible, but that you'd ever play yourself in that role? I mean, why don't they ever think about let's get the actual person? <laughs> would you go back and, and relive it Hollywood style? I don't think anyone would come and watch it if I was acting in it. We need someone really really amazing that will pull in the punters to come and watch it. But, you know, for me, I mean, the reason I called it Brave Girl Media is because it has to do more than like pay off my mortgage. Like there has to be some good that can come out from this incredible potential opportunity on the horizon. And it will be about two years before it hits the cinema. So, you know, we've got a bit of a lead time here to build something up that's actually going to do some good. And I don't know yet what that looks like. I've got all these ideas. But at the heart of my story, it's, it's very much about that, you know, as a woman, you can achieve whatever you put your mind to. And I've got two little girls now and I, I'm desperate for them to grow up knowing and believing that. Um, and so, you know, I want something to come from that movie, some movement, some business, some, something has got to come off the back of that, that encourages girls to be brave. Because what we see in mixed diversity developers, our other business is that it's so difficult to get women to the top of organizations. There's structural internal reasons for that, but there's also reasons in women's heads why they don't get there as well. It's a combination of the two, about 50, 50, actually the research shows. Uh, and so, you know, we can't just say the business has got to change. Actually women have to change. We have to be a little bit braver. Uh, and so I, I, I just, I can't, I'm really excited about what that's going to turn into, but I, I just don't know what it is yet, but I'm sure the more I talk about it and then, you know, the more we throw ideas around, the more something will come from it. Yeah, I love it. And I can already think of a few things myself and I can see the oh, good. in your, in your mind. Throwing. So you if any of your to... listeners have got any ideas, throw them out. Yeah. I yes. got, I just, we need to just collate ideas from, from people out there. 
And I absolutely love the name Brave Girl Media and you obviously set it up to be so much more than just, you know, a movie. I also loved your language there because you said when it hits the cinemas and, do you, you know, like you've already yes. preempted this. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. And that segues perfectly into this killer mindset that you have about, you know, really, really being sure and certain of an outcome, even if it doesn't look anything like you originally thought it might, which is really harps back to that rowing. Like you didn't think you were going to be out there by yourself. You were there with your man at the time and you thought you were going to be, you know, there in a month and a bit and attend something completely different. So I'd love to talk more about this because you've always been probably one of the people I admire most around just this massively healthy mindset that you've worked hard to develop. And a lot of it came out of that experience, but so much more, you know, after that you could have potentially crashed and burned, you know, this massive experience and it could have, it really, you've just made the most of it in every single way. Cause that was a, a huge ordeal. And I'm sure you took time to recover from it as well, both pers- personally and physically. So what are some of your tips around developing this? I don't know, this mindset of I've got this and no matter what, I can do this, this big, brave, beautiful mindset. I'd love to to talk about some of your tips and you do share them regularly. And I think it's really amazing that you're so generous with it. I mean, I don't think any of them are rocket science. And in, and in many ways, people will have heard similar things before. But I do, I do think it's about having a set of ritualistic habits almost, you know, things that actually boost your both your confidence your your attitude and, and raise your levels of positivity um i i mean i, I must preface all of this was that i i don't think i'm actually naturally someone who is particularly jolly like I, i'm you know i'm not someone who's super positive i don't leap out of bed full of the joys of spring and i find those people really quite irritating <laughs> but i have recognized that it is it, i do believe it's key to success for in, in many businesses um and just in life, like just even in my family life, when mummy is happy, it's amazing the impact it has on the kids, like really incredible. It's better yeah. for family life. It's better for my relationships. So um, some of the things that I, I did at sea that have helped was I, I do a lot of running of movies. I suppose that athletes would call it visualization, but I, I run a lot of movies in my mind of, you know, the important things things you know key conversations a a conversation with a colleague or doing a pitch for a piece of business almost feels a bit like then when you're in there it's like you can press play and the movie starts you're almost in autopilot because you've you've trained yourself you prepared yourself for it and and where I think the benefit of that is is that it's a bit like when you watch a horror movie but for the second time that when you press play and you start watching a horror movie you know you jump don't you when you get to the really yeah. scary bit but if you watch it again on a second occasion sometime later you don't jump when you get to the scary bit because you know it's coming and you you've so mentally true. and emotionally prepared yourself for it so the more you can run movies of the challenging moments or the moments you want to be happy and good that the more when we're in that moment we can just press play and we we go into this kind of auto pilot state so I think some of it's about this pre-work like preparing for moments and within that preparing I'm always really aware that I get to choose the attitude with which I show up in whatever the situation is the attitude which I show up when I pick up my kids from school the attitude which I show up when I walk into that meeting with a client and actually the things I do leading up to that have a really big impact and whether I'm positive or negative in that meeting. And so I, I found there were songs, certain music at sea that for me like almost instantly would change my mindset and make me feel more positive. And so I put them all onto a playlist. I call my memory songs because each one of them is attached to an incredible memory, you know, a brilliant ski holiday or a song that my kids love or, you know, and, and of course my memory song wouldn't mean anything to you because you haven't got any memories attached to them. We've all got our own ones. And I think getting those, you know, five or 10 songs that when you put them on instantly take you to that really positive place, those are the ones to listen to on the drive into the office or, you know, on the drive to go and see your partner because you walk in the door a completely different person than with this little spring in your step. And that's contagious. You know, we get to control that. So there's this pre-work that I, I really think is, is important and, and it's easy to listen to the radio and hear politicians arguing, you know, kind of slip into routines of doing things. I think we need to change the routines and, and put in some of these more positive ones, the taking the time to run these movies, to listen to our memory songs so that we approach things with the right attitude. 
100% agree. I can't believe that you're not a positive person when you wake up in the morning. I've never seen you not, but probably in your mind you have those moments of like, I'm not really built this way. And thinking about songs and visualization, because I've done some of that through sport, which I'm really, really grateful yeah. for. Um, some visualization before the world champs, I remember back in 2006 for Ultimate Frisbee, and it really, really helped. But interestingly, I have, but not as much as I thought, applied it to my life and to those big moments. So I've definitely visualized before going on stage how I want things to be. Uh, visualized before a launch of an of an online program that meant the world to me how that was going to go and each time I did that along with as you said probably I've got 30 favorite songs that put me in the mood because it's such a physiological change that yes. you get through music every single time I've done that it's been a success so which really just hammers home the point that if you plan to invest that time and to do that work you ultimately get the outcome you want. So I guess the question yeah. for me is why don't I do that more often? It's one of those things that you do really have to choose your attitude, as you said, but some days it just feels harder to pull on those, yeah. those tools than others. And so for those days, what do you, what do you do? I know you can turn the music yeah. on. But yeah. yeah. So one of the things I really like, and I did this a lot at sea is I had a scale that I'd come up with and it was called my, how bad is it scale? Because I think sometimes what happens <laughs> is we just lose perspective and we think it's really bad, but actually it's not. And so on, I came up with this scale of one to 10 and, and one was, you know, you've made it to Barbados and 10 was you're being eaten by a shark. Cause like, that was about as bad as I could imagine <laughs> it getting. And so on the times when it felt really bad and I couldn't get myself into a positive mindset, I would go, right, how bad is it, Deborah? And on the scale, interestingly, even on my worst days at sea, you know, in really stormy conditions, I only ever got to about seven or an eight. I always felt that there was this tiny bit more mental and physical hardship I could put up with if I really had to. And once I then shifted my perspective by putting myself on the scale and realizing I wasn't at a 10, I could then shift my attitude. And I still do this now. So I've got a how bad is it scale still, but I changed what's on it because I don't have so many sharks around me these days. So now it's like, you know, the business has gone bankrupt and I've lost the house. And even on my worst days in the office, I only ever get to about a four or five, but it didn't, doesn't feel that way at the time until you put it on the scale. And then you go, actually, you know what? It's really not that bad. Come on, shift the perspective and then you can shift your mindset. So I, I like that little kind of how bad is it tool. I think that that really helps me um, move away from some negative spiral down thinking. The other things I do, I mean, there's lots of the things I guess everyone would have heard of. I've, you know, I've, I've got into the habit of doing a gratitude journal each day. I've got a housemate from university. I live with a guy called Andy Pudicombe who uh, has got a fantastic app called Headspace. And I find the Headspace meditation app very helpful for just separating, like helping me observe my thoughts and not take on the emotion and then kind of embed it into something negative. But, Wait a minute, um, you lived with Andy? Yeah, I did. Yeah, we were housemates oh at university. Oh gosh, that's crazy. I love the Headspace app. I actually use Insights Timer a lot more these days, but when I first started using it, he was the one who got me into meditation when I just couldn't sit with my thoughts. And I just loved his yeah. accent and he'd always just at the right time go, and if you find yourself floating away, I was like, oh my God, how did you know it? So yeah, He's really a mind reader. He is an amazing app as well. So that's incredible. I love the, the roller decks that you must have of the people that you've met, hung out with, and spoken to is just incredible. Sorry, I yeah. up. That's amazing. Yes, although I wouldn't have thought when we were getting drunk at university that either of us have ended up where we are. But you know, he's—I'm <laughs> a big fan of what he's been doing since um, since since university drunken days. The other thing that I, I found really helpful though is um, future truth journaling, and um, and actually I'm I'm bringing out a future truth journal. It's called the Choose Your Attitude Journal. We're so excited about it. We um, we finally found the right designer this week, and she's making a start on it, and it's coming out in about two months' time when we get the first print run through. But what I've tried to do is take on board a number of the practices that I did at sea and that I've carried on using kind of uh, habitually, and I turned them into a writing practice that I've been doing for a few years now. And my, my future truthing where I write every day is in, you know, in the past tense as if I've already achieved what it is that I'm working towards. It's incredible. Like I read back through last year, even, and the things that I, I wrote last year about, you know, uh, I wrote in detail about being a podcast guest on, on this guy's podcast called Rob Bell. He's a big, I'm a big fan of his, you know, he's this really big name star in America. He'd been on tour with Oprah. Uh, you know, the guy's never heard of me and I thought I'm never going to get on his show, but I future truth journaled about it as if it was my truth. And, um, last September when I was in LA, I was interviewed 
uh, by him on his podcast. So it's, it's all about training the subconscious mind. A lot of it's down to this, you know, there's this filter in our brains, a reticular activating system. And when we, we, we write in our future truths, we're, we're training our brain, we're showing it the things we're interested in and asking our brain, like, you know, go out there and find me those opportunities. And so I, you know, I'm a big believer in that as a practice, which is why I'm, you know, it's the first kind of physical product that we've, we've sold other than my kind of books I've written, but I've never had a product before. So I'm quite excited about bringing that out because I know for me, it's been incredible, like what it's helped me achieve. So I'm desperate to see if other people find the same when they start using it. I'm so excited to see that. And I, for one, will definitely be getting it. It reminds me a little bit of what I have used for many years, the painted picture, which is where you see yourself personally and professionally three Mm -hmm. years from now, but in vivid detail. And then I now sort of call the life canvas. So it's like you paint this, it's still the painting, like you paint this picture of where you want to be. And it's surprising because the first time I did it, 60% of what I wanted to have happen happened in the first year. So it's kind of like what you wish for. So I'm super excited about that. And and, you know, this is just neuroscience for dummies really this is a you know it is a simple bit of brain training and it's it's not as kind of woo and weird as it sounds it's you know there's it's it's based in neuroscience and and the other bit of the practice that I do in that and you you kind of alluded to already earlier is that I I one of my key things from the rowing boat was that I consciously chose an attitude each day and this came about because I nearly got run over by a big container ship and I was hysterical on the phone, on this satellite phone to my twin sister. I remember her saying to me, Deborah, you know, you've just got to choose your attitude about this. <laughs> and I was so annoyed with her. I was like, I would punch you if you were here. But actually, it was really interesting. Those three words, choose your attitude, they really stuck with me. They stuck with me all these years because what struck me at sea was that I had, I, there was so much I couldn't control. You know, I couldn't choose so much of what happened out there for life really isn't it i responded to it and so i yeah exactly and i started consciously choosing an attitude and this is not about choosing to be happy or joyful it's about choosing the right attitude that's right for the moment whether it's patience or resilience or whatever it might be and i often post what my attitude is for the day on instagram because i i think the key though is listing the benefits so i i say what my attitude is for the day and then I make myself list what would come, what would be the benefits, what would come from the day if I was able to stick to that attitude for the day. And by the time I get to the end of the list of benefits, every day I'm convinced it's worth giving it a go because I really want those things to happen. So that's one of the, the things I write in my Choose Your Attitude journal each morning that we're going to put in this, this new journal that's coming out as a practice it's one that if we can get into the habit of doing it and we have a trigger, like something that reminds us to do it, then that one I found really impactful that I, I do have this choice. And I think we so easily forget that we, we let the world life pressures dictate our mood rather than accepting that actually we, we can choose something different. Absolutely love it. And super excited for you. Um, yeah, just I think it's very much needed in the world and it's all about choosing your attitude every day. Sometimes it's harder than others. But I think oh, through the really practices is. of meditation yeah. and mindfulness and just reframing, as you said, like life short, let's just have fun and not taking yourself too seriously are all the ways that I sometimes jumpstart myself if I'm reacting poorly to something that I'm like, really? Why? <laughs> where did this come from? Choose your attitude. Yeah. I'd love to know where people can obviously find out more about you because I could talk to you for hours, but I am also reminded that time is precious and then you have many things to do and go on to do. I know you're speaking tomorrow. It's very exciting. So where can people learn more about you? And also I believe that you have a little treat for the listeners that they can actually grab some of those mindset tools based on neuroscience for free. Yeah. Well, debrasell.com is my website, spelt the short way, D-E-B-R-A and um, S-E-A-R-L-E. It's not obvious how you spell my name, <laughs> um, but that's where I am. And generally Deborah Searle or Deborah Searle MB on most um, social media things, particularly Facebook and Instagram, the two places I tend to hang out. I did put together a guide for your audience and it's about diagnosing and treating your limiting belief. Because for me, that's been such a huge part of my journey, you know, back from when I was a PE teacher to going on to, you know, working with the Royal Family, BBC, it's, it's been about for me diagnosing and then treating this limiting belief I had about my lack of intelligence. And I think we all tell ourselves these stories about what we can and can't achieve. And so if you want to work through that kind of 
process that I've, I have been going through for years and still have to go through. Like I still struggle with this. It comes out now in imposter syndrome, this kind of limiting belief I've got about my intelligence. But I still have to use some of the tools that I've put in this little guide. And you can get to that directly by going to debrasell.com forward slash stories, S-T-O-R-I-E-S because we all need to stop telling ourselves some stories and we need to start telling some new stories about what we can achieve. Oh, I love it. You're so right. Um, I can't wait. I'm going to go grab it because I remember when you did your beautiful Instagram story, you were just starting out and I was so impressed how you just embraced it and look at you now and uh, you discussed this and I was like, oh, so good. Just to to have your, your attitude that you've taken for all these years condensed into this fantastic Instagram story. And then you said, you know, I think I'm going to put this out there if you'd like it. And I was like, yes, please. So wonderful that you've done that for us. Thank you so much. And for finally coming on the Untapped podcast, this did take a while to happen uh, due to both of us time zones and traveling. I'm so glad we made it, even though I've got a silly head cold, uh, but I'm choosing my attitude to speak to you and I already feel so much better. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh gosh, you're really welcome. It's a delight to be part of it. And I've loved following on your journey as well. It's been great to see all you've achieved. And so, yeah, thank you for having me here. um, If anyone's still listening, we we could talk forever. That's the problem with us, Nats. Like, we could go on for hours. (laughs) I think, you know, if people want Deborah back on the podcast, which I'm sure they do, please make it known. Um, Reach out on at Natalie Sisson on Instagram when you see this shared there and let us know in the comments. And, of course, follow Deborah's amazing work. And I'm so excited about the upcoming movie. Yes. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Deborah. I could have talked to her for hours, as you probably realize. She is just such an inspiration, but just has so much humility. And I really hope that she's made you think about just the ways in which you're showing up in the world, the opportunities that you can seize, the opportunities that come out of things that you may not have even realized they would, and how to go about making the most of those. So if you ever want a pep talk, I will link to in the show notes at nataliesisson.com forward slash 024, her TED talk and a bunch of other resources that we talked about on this episode. Obviously get her awesome choosing your attitude guide that she has given out so generously. And if you are wondering how to get paid to be you, how to do something like Deborah, but in a totally different industry or sphere using your own unique skills and experience, I have a treat for you. I have finally, finally launched my new homepage on my website and my new offering, which is a audio and a short guide, step-by-step guide on how to get paid to be you. So just simply go to nataliesisson.com and you'll see it right there on the homepage. Can't wait to see what you think of it. And I really hope that it helps you to monetize yourself tap into your potential and get paid to be you and make an impact in this world while living a purposeful life. I'm Natalie Sisson. Go choose your attitude.